Today's Vectoral Podcast is sponsored by Zoetis, makers of Vanguard CIV, H3N2, H3N8, bivalent vaccine. Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Annette Litzter. She's a senior veterinary specialist with Zoetis, and I'm super excited to have her today because we're going to be talking about an important hot topic, canine influenza. Dr. Litzter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Justine. Great to be here. So first of all, since people can't see you on our podcast, I just wanted to briefly introduce you. From what I understand, graduated as a veterinarian in 1982 and have a PhD in feline heartworm disease and a master's degree in clinical epidemiology. And you're also the former faculty associate professor in small animal internal medicine at Purdue University. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Excellent. It sounds like you have a passion for infectious disease, shelter medicine, and feline medicine. So absolutely love to have you on today. Thank you. Yes, those are my passions. And I'm very fortunate in that I get to engage all of those in my current position as a senior veterinary specialist at Zoetis. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is canine influenza. And this is something that we all get bombarded with questions from our pet owners, regardless of where we live, whether or not that's on the East Coast, in Chicago, all over. And that's because we're seeing more and more signs pop up and more and more social media awareness about canine influenza. So I was wondering if you could just describe to us what the clinical signs of canine influenza virus are. Tell us a little bit about it and tell us how worried we should be. How contagious is it? So uh, a few questions just back to back there. I'll start with the first. Clinical signs. I really like it that you brought that particular part of the virus up first because it gives me a chance to bust a myth straight up. And that is the clinical signs of any of the pathogens that constitute canine infectious respiratory disease complex, which is composed of about 12 or more different viruses and bacteria, are the same. We can't differentiate any of those pathogens by their clinical signs. So when you ask me, what are the clinical signs of CIV? then I've got to tell you that clinical signs of CIRDC are usually upper respiratory signs such as um, sneezing, coughing. It could be some discharge uh, from the eyes or nose. And dogs are usually pretty well in themselves. They'll continue to eat mostly because they won't have a fever and they may cough for a week or two. That's the typical mild presentation. However, some dogs have a more severe presentation, and that is a sign that whichever of the infections or co-infections are present in that dog have gone through to the lower respiratory system usually. And so there's the signs of that typical presentation plus perhaps dyspnea and clinical signs of lower respiratory infection. The severe presentation is more likely to happen in puppies and unvaccinated dogs. And if those dogs do recover, and they don't always, unfortunately, there will be a prolonged recovery where these dogs can uh, cough for weeks 
two months. As far as the transmissibility of CIV, it has really high transmission rates within a population. We think about 80 to 100%. And if you put that together with preclinical shedding, which means that the dog is actually actively shedding virus and transmitting it to other dogs before it develops any clinical signs, so it's still looking perfectly healthy, that can make this virus very difficult to manage and very difficult to protect your dog from uh, without uh, vaccination. I think that we should all be concerned about CIV. The media reports are absolutely right. It's popping up all over the place. The original H3N2 outbreak that came to Chicago from Southeast Asia about three years ago now came with a dog that was imported from Southeast Asia. And since then, there have been many outbreaks all over the country. And a lot of those have been through dog transport. We know that dogs travel all over the place, the dog shows, just to visit family and all kinds of other unpredictable reasons. So in this way, there have been a lot of different outbreaks of H3N2 spread throughout the country. Unfortunately, we are still allowing dogs in from Southeast Asia where the H3N2 infection came from three years ago, these dogs are still getting in. And in fact, the recent Northern California outbreak, which affected thousands of dogs, was started by an index case where people had gone online and adopted two dogs from South Korea. They were able to do that online and those dogs came to them in Northern California just a couple of days later. They were already sick when they arrived at the people's home and that was the start of that outbreak. A very sad addendum to that is that the family already owned a couple of dogs that were not vaccinated and one of them died from H3N2 infection. So these unpredictable things are happening all the time. We're getting H3N2 from inside the country and outside the country. And then there are infectious cofactors from any of the other CIRDC pathogens. So I think it's so hard because people oftentimes, even as veterinary professionals say, oh, it's quote kennel cough. And I think they often forget about those other canine infectious respiratory diseases. So for that reason, should we be diagnosing it more aggressively or what is the best way to diagnose it? Like PCR versus serology or what exact test should we be requesting? So if we're talking about CIV and any dog that has signs of CIRDC, and I really like that new term, CIRDC, just because it reminds us that it is an umbrella term that covers a number of different viral and bacterial pathogens, and that we can't tell between them on clinical signs. You're absolutely right. We need laboratory testing to be able to identify the pathogen 
Because when you think about it logically, how can we make a management plan or give owners tailored advice to the needs of their dog and to keep other dogs in the neighbourhood safe if we don't even know whether we're dealing with a bacteria or a virus? So we need to start by identifying the pathogen. The best way to start is by doing a PCR test. So the uh, newer PCR tests for upper respiratory infections in dogs will give you a number of answers. One of the labs has both CIVs, that's H3N2 that came into the country about three years ago and H3N8 that Dr. Cinder Crawford first reported over a decade ago now in their regular panel. Another one of the labs you need to check an extra box to get CIV in the PCR panel. So just be sure that you do that and you know that what results that you're going to get. Start with PCR so you know what pathogens that dog has on board. And in my mind, with so many of these H3N2 outbreaks popping up, I see H3N2 as a horse in this scenario rather than a zebra. So I like to make sure that it's absolutely ruled out in dogs with clinical signs. Why I make this point is that it's pretty easy to receive a false negative result on PCR for H3N2. And that is because for both the CIVs, the viral shedding window is relatively brief in most cases, about seven days. More recent information about H3N2 has showed us that there can be limited intermittent shedding by some dogs for up to two weeks or even more after the usual seven-day shedding period. This means there's nothing that you can really rely on as far as extended shedding and making sure that you pick that up on a diagnostic test, but perhaps the possibility of extended transmissibility of this virus by some dogs. So if that dog has been presented to you more than about four days, after the onset of clinical signs, it's possible that you might have missed that shedding window. And even though the clinical signs are due to CIV, then you're going to get a false negative result. So when you get your initial PCR panel, look for CIV. If it's negative, then you might like to follow up with serology. So that's a blood test which you're going to take now and send off for antibody levels. Those antibody levels can be quite low, perhaps 1 in 16 to 1 in 64 immediately after vaccination against CIV. But for an active infection, we're really looking for titers in the hundreds to the thousands. If you get that on that first blood sample, you have your answer. That dog is actively infected with CIV. You're going to get two titers, one for H3N2 and one for H3N8. 
If the titer is still low, then you can come back maybe two weeks later. You can take a convalescent titer and see what's happened by then. If the convalescent titer is also low, then you can at that stage rule out H3N2 and H3N8. As I said earlier, because these infections, especially H3N2, are common, I think it's a really good idea to rule them out and not to think that just because you got a negative PCR result or maybe, depending on the lab you use, no PCR result for H3N2 at all, that you can rule it out. You can't rule out on a negative PCR result. Great information. Thank you so much. So important to know how we can accurately test for it. Now, I know Sandra Newberry and her team out of University of Wisconsin-Madison was concerned that they were testing some of these dogs and were finding that some dogs were shedding for longer, even up to 21 days. And the concern is that if they're asymptomatic, they may be carrying it and still shedding it. What are your thoughts on that? So I think that's a really important point that you make, Justine. Yes, this information from the JASMA article that described a shelter-based study did find that there were a small number of dogs that shed intermittently after that seven-day period. So in my mind, uh, that intermittent shedding could potentially transmit disease, although those intermittent shedders were shedding at very low levels. So we're not absolutely sure about that, but it was intermittent shedding. So we shouldn't think that we can rely on that prolonged shedding for diagnostic purposes with H3N2 because in that study, it only happened with some dogs at very low levels and it was intermittent. Excellent information. Now, in terms of the vaccine, if people are vaccinating with the bivalent H3N2 and H3N8, what do we need to know in terms of interpreting our serology? And my part two of that question is, should people be vaccinating for just one or the other or the bivalent? So I firmly believe that broader protection is better. So I would use a bivalent vaccine. I know from PCR results that we've seen at Zoetis from dogs all over the country that we are still getting H3N8 positive dogs. So that infection is still occurring and you really can't choose between them. That's why I say broader protection is better, especially when you can use a bivalent vaccine, one-shot coverage for both. Now, in terms of vaccination, how is that going to affect serology? So soon after vaccination, it is possible to get a low antibody titer. And what I mean by low is perhaps 1 in 16 to 1 in 64. Those would be typical post-vaccination titers. But what we're really looking for to diagnose active infection is a titer that's in the hundreds to the thousands, say one in 512 or higher. All right. So good to know. And I know this isn't a quote core vaccine. So it's something that we do recommend 
figuring out what population should be vaccinated. Are there any specific recommendations you deem in terms of a, quote, social dog that warrants getting the bivalent vaccine? Uh, Yeah, you bring up a couple of really good points. And um, one is that I like to remind practitioners that this concept of a core vaccine is very much in their hands. They're the experts for their patient population. And so what is core and non-core for their practice is absolutely their decision. You know, there are various bodies such as AHA or WSABA that can categorise vaccines as core or non-core. And they're trying to give very um, broad brush information. But it's our responsibility as practitioners to tailor non-core and core to the needs of our own patients because we're the experts in our local area. As far as risks with social dogs, absolutely. Dogs that have contact with other dogs do need to be protected. And the way the vaccine works is that it is an inactivated or kills vaccine. So the primary series is going to be two doses, three weeks apart. And then you should give perhaps five to seven days after the second dose before you would expect maximal protection. Thereafter, it's an annual vaccination. The question I would like to ask is realistically, which dogs are not social dogs? I think that most dogs do go for walks and they at least see other dogs on the way to and from their walk. Uh, And most of our patients not only come into veterinary hospitals, which is a, a social area for dogs, but they also go to a wide variety of services such as groomers and boarders. They go to dog parks. So there are very few dogs that don't have a social element to their lives and they all need to be protected. You can see from the way the vaccination should be given that you need to plan ahead for this in order to get maximal protection. We want to make sure that we're well prepared so that when dogs are exposed to these viruses, they have that vaccine protection on board and they're much, much less likely to get clinical signs or infection. All right. One question I often get asked, well, I want to get the human flu vaccine, but I don't want to get the flu from it. Is there any concern about pet owners getting their dog vaccinated for H3N2 or H3N8 and their dog actually contracting the virus from the vaccine? Or are there any side effects that we veterinary professionals should know about? So that's not a concern uh, that has come up over millions of doses that we have sold at Zoetis. So fortunately, no, uh, those those aren't concerns that have been raised by our customers uh, for their experiences with their patients that they're protecting from these viruses. Now, do you mind also giving me some information? Is there any cross-protection with the bivalent vaccine? And if a dog is vaccinated with H3N8 and the owner wants to booster with a bivalent, do you have to restart the vaccine series? 
So that's a great question, Justine. It's thought that there is very little cross-protection at all, and we first started suspecting this when antibody tests for the two flu viruses became commercially available, and you could see real differences in antibody titers for H3N2 and H3N8. So in that way, if a dog is receiving a new part to the vaccine, they've previously been vaccinated against H3N8 and they're now receiving a bivalent, the H3N2 part of that bivalent vaccine does need to be boosted three weeks later. So, yes, that dog would need to receive a bivalent uh, booster three weeks after the first one, and then it would just go back to an annual regimen after that, as you suggest. So I know one good resource that I oftentimes will direct pet owners to or use on veterinary clinic social media sites is actually Cornell's Diagnostic Center's website where they do have several updated maps of canine influenza H3N2 based on their surveillance network that is available. And it basically shows where CIB was positive or negative and where there's pertinent information that we need to know about. I think the important thing to take away is how should we be interpreting these maps? Great question, Justine. And I am familiar with those Cornell maps. There are a number of them now. And it is great data. Um, There's a map that shows you where this virus H3N2 has been diagnosed since it started about three years ago. And that's a very compelling map because it shows you that it has been all over the country. I think that one word that you need to think of with H3N2 is unpredictable. It's just popping up all over the place. There are also maps that show more recent data, but I think that we need to be very mindful of something that I heard Professor Ed DeBovey from Cornell, who runs that lab, saying just this week, which is there are very few dogs that are represented by those maps because very few dogs are tested by PCR for H3N2. Uh, He estimated that it would be less than 10% of dogs with clinical signs of CIRDC that are represented in the maps with PCR data. We've also said that it's pretty easy to get a false negative PCR result for CIV. So um, you need to really interpret those maps very carefully. Wherever it says there has been a case, yes, I would absolutely believe it. But if there are areas that are unrepresented either by positive or negative results, or if there are areas that just have negative results in them, well, I would say we'll just wait and see about that because of the low rate of testing and also the possibility of false negative PCR results. I certainly don't feel that 
it would be wise to use these maps to wait until the maps show that it's come to your area before deciding on whether it's going to be core for your practice or not because as we know most dogs are not represented in these maps and it could even be that the virus is well and truly in your local area but that information doesn't make it to the map because testing isn't being done so beware with the maps. That's great information. I always tell people, if you don't take a temperature, you can't find a fever. And so if you have a lot of coughing dogs in your area and you don't actually test for it, we have no idea what etiology of canine infectious respiratory disease we're dealing with. Is it Bordetella, Mycoplasma, parainfluenza, canine influenza. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to emphasize testing because it is really frustrating when we're under-diagnosing it or don't know exactly what we're treating. Absolutely right, Justine. And the other thing too is if you don't know which pathogen you're dealing with, how are you going to give dog owners recommendations on how they can keep other dogs safe? Because you need to know from which pathogen it is, how long the shedding period is. That can vary from only a few days after clinical signs have started in the case of H3N8 to weeks to even months for some of the bacterial agents. We really need to identify that pathogen so that we can give science-based recommendations on when it's safe for the dog to go back to the dog park or the daycare or go into your boarding facility. Yeah, I think it's so important. We actually just changed our hospital policy at the specialty clinic that I work at because we want to make sure our own staff pets that oftentimes come to the hospital with us when we work are protected and more importantly, not shedding it to any of our patients. I also think this is very important for veterinary professionals who do grooming or boarding. You have to make sure that your patients are appropriately protected before they're going to stay at your hospital. And so it's more than just, quote, a Bordetella vaccine. We do have to worry about parainfluenza and influenza. So updating your policy for boarding uh, within your own veterinary facility. Well, Dr. Litster, thank you so much. Fantastic information on canine influenza. And I really appreciate you providing this fantastic clinically relevant content about dog flu for us on today's Vet Girl podcast. Thanks, Justine. I enjoyed it. <laughs>